In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Tonight, our Bible study from the book of Psalms, Psalm 79. This psalm, titled as a psalm of Asaph. So according to the title, Asaph is the author. And Asaph is the great singer and musician during the time of David. But since this psalm is speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and we know that this happened three times. One time in the Babylonian captivity, second time during the era of the Maccabees, and the third time the final destruction of the temple which happened 70 AD by Titus, the Roman commander. So there was a controversy among the scholars concerning who is Asaph, the identity of the author of this psalm, and the date of its writing. Whether it is a prophecy about the desolation that will happen to Jerusalem, either, as I said, by the Chaldeans, under Nebuchadnezzar, or by the Gentile during the time of the Maccabees, or it is a record written after it had already taken place. So some, this is not the opinion by the church, of the church by the way, but just I'm saying all the opinion. Some claim that since it describes the destruction of Jerusalem, then it was not written by Asaph, this great musician and singer during the time of David. And since Asaph lived and served during the reigns of King David and King Solomon, so this is likely a later Asaph. But as I saw, told you, the church does not accept this opinion. Why? Because in Second Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 30, we read that Asaph was a prophet in his musical composition. So he was not only a musician, he is not only a singer, but also a prophet. As we read in Second Chronicles chapter 29, verse 30. Therefore, Asaph, by prophetic spirit, he foresaw and foretold things that should come to pass and is spoken of in this psalm. Another opinion that the church also does not accept it, something it was composed by Jeremiah. Why? Because verses 6 and 7 of this psalm are exactly the same of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 10, 25. But we know in the writing of the prophets, they quote each other. So maybe Jeremiah took these two verses from Psalm 79 and he mentioned in his book. Also, Psalm 79, verse 3, appeared to be quoted in 1 Maccabees, chapter 7, and verse 17. But again, it can be prophecy about what happened in, during this time, and the author of Maccabees actually quote Psalm 79. So, this is the seventh of 11 psalms attributed to Asaph. In the book of Psalms, 
there are 11 psalms attributed to Asaf. This psalm, in order, this number 7 in these 11 psalms. And this psalm is closely related to Psalm 74, which also speaks of the destruction of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem. In this psalm, Asaf calls out to God, asking how long the anger of the Lord will burn against Jerusalem because of the sins of the people and the sins of their forefathers. It is a short psalm, just 13 verse. From 1 to 4, the devastation of Jerusalem. From 5 to 12, prayer to turn away the anger of God. Last verse 13, praise is promised. So let's start from verse 1. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. Your holy temple they have defiled. They have laid Jerusalem in heaps. The dead bodies of your servants they have given as food for the birds of the heaven. The flesh of your saints to the beasts of the earth. So, in these four verses, the psalmist tells his grief to God. His land is overrun by the heathen. His temple is violated, the temple of God, and defiled. The city of God, Jerusalem, is in ruins. The people of God are slaughtered. The survivors are the scorn of their neighbors. So the psalmist speaks of the attack on Jerusalem as an attack of God himself. That's why he used your inheritance, your holy temple, your city. So as if it is attack on God himself. The nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. The psalmist has the land of Israel in mind with the word of your inheritance. Not only Jerusalem, but all the land of inheritance. So it was a purposeful attack on the true and living God. These heathen are attacking the true and living God by attacking his inheritance, his people, his temple. In verse 1, we read, they have laid Jerusalem in heaps. This actually not done either by Shishak or by Antiochus Epiphanius, but was done by the Babylonians. So this verse refers to the destruction of Jerusalem during the captivity by the Babylonians. And the desolation did not happen in the time of Asaph, I told you it was just a prophecy. He prophesied about what will happen. So this psalm could be a prophecy of what will happen in Jerusalem in the days of Nabuchodonosor, the Babylonian activity, or in the day of Antiochus Epiphanius, that's the Maccabees, or by the hand of Titus, the Roman commander, as I told you. It was also an attack on God's people, as we read in verse 2. The psalmist now laments the slaughter of the people and the cruelty of the enemy who would not allow the bodies of the slain to be buried. 
they exposed these dead bodies to be eaten by the birds of the heaven and by the beasts of the earth. As we read, we read in verse 2, the dead bodies of your servant they have given as food for the birds of the heaven, the flesh of your saints to the beast of the earth. Their blood they have shed like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to those who are around us. So this was the situation, both at the time of the Babylonian captivity, during the time of Maccabees. The people are still spoken of as the people of God, even though they deserved the punishment for their sins. God delivered them to the captivity because of their sins. But still, even when we are sinners, God is faithful to us and called us his people and his children. Verse 3 is quoted, as I told you, in 1 Maccabees chapter 7, verse 17. Their blood they have shed like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. And also was prophesied by Jeremiah, Jeremiah 14, 16. They have shed their blood in such quantities that it seems to flow like water, which actually was common in wars. They shed their blood without remorse, without any fear of God or man. And according to St. Augustine, if we take here the word Jerusalem as being literally the earthly city of Jerusalem, we shall understand the shedding of their blood around it in a literal sense. So actually the blood of the Jews actually was too plenty to surround the city of Jerusalem. But also, we may also take it, Jerusalem is a symbol of the church. And the persecution against the church is so violent everywhere that the blood of martyrs is shed like rivers of water. The shocking and the brutal fall of Jerusalem and Judah made the Israelites a disgrace, shameful to the surrounding nation. As he said in verse 4, we have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to those who are around us. And the book of Obadiah prophesied about Edom. Edom is Esau. And Esau and Jacob were brothers. And Esau, or and his descendant, rejoiced over the people of God, over Israel, on the day of their affliction, and when they ridiculed them and cut off those who escaped and delivered them to their enemies. And God actually rebuking Edom, the children of Esau, how they did that to their cousins. They are their cousins. So actually they took them, those, the survivor, and delivered them to their enemies. A scorn and derision to those who are around us, as the Christian in all ages have been to the men of the world. Verse 5. How long, Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? So the psalmist, seeing God's anger, 
so terribly provoked against his people that he feared for their total destruction. That's why he's asking, how long will you be angry? If you did not intervene to deliver us, we will be totally destroyed. God's delay in sending relief often seem long and even frustrating. Will there be no end to this chastisement? And by the way, when he said, how long? He is not questioning why God is chastising his people, why the suffering. But in faith is asking when the suffering will end, if it will last forever. He understands that the affliction of God's people was a result of their sin because they worshipped pagan gods, idols. And he points out that the source of God's anger is his jealousy. When they start to worship idols, God became jealous because we are his bride or his children. That's why he said, will your jealousy burn like fire? So they turn it to other false gods, thus provoking the jealousy and the wrath of God. So he beseeches God to spare his people from being burned utterly by the fire of his divine jealousy. Verse 6, Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you, and on the kingdoms that do not call on your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his dwelling place. Asaph expressed the heart of the devastated people of Judah after the fall of Jerusalem. In the years of Jeremiah's ministry, actually many false prophets had told them deliverance would come. Actually, Jeremiah went and he said to the people, go deliver yourself to the captivity because God will not deliver you. And if you refuse, you will be killed by sword or by famine or taken captivity as, as captives. The people at the time, including the king, they ignored God's true messenger, Jeremiah. And that's why judgment came upon them. And they were completely unprepared for it. Because they believed the false prophets who told them, peace, 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 God will deliver you. God's anger and jealousy would not burn against his people forever. Because the purpose of this to lead us to repentance, not to destroy us. Jeremiah foretold the judgment to come, but he also told of the restoration that would follow. So he gives them hope. When we repent, God will restore the Israelites to their land and the, the temple will be restored. Who are the nations in verse 6? Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call on your name. The nations, it is not the heathen that had never heard of God. They are not intended here. But those who have heard of him and refused to know him, as was the case with all the nations around about Canaan. So their neighbors. Asaph is asking God 
to pour out his wrath. Though he confesses that they have deserved God's wrath, yet the heathen who knew God heard about him but refused to acknowledge him deserve it much more. Why? They are guilty of far greater sins than them, living in total ignorance by not worshiping God and denying him. St. Augustine comments on pour out your wrath on the nations and says, this too is a prophecy, not a wish. So when Asaph said pour out, he's not wishing or praying that God be angry with them. But he, as I told you, Asaph was prophetic in his musical composition. So it's just he's declaring what will happen. That what St. Augustine says, this too is a prophecy, not a wish. Not in the imprecation of malevolence are these words spoken. Meaning that not because he was angry at this nation, that's why he is wishing destruction for them. But foreseen by the Spirit. Asaph, as a prophet, he foresaw by the Holy Spirit. That's why these words are predicted. Pour out your wrath on the nation is prediction. It is prophecy. Just as in the case of Judas the traitor, the Psalms about Judas the traitor, it is not uh, let his dwelling place be desolate uh, about Judas the traitor. It's not just a, a wish for destruction, but rather a prophecy about what will happen to Judas. The evil things which were to befall him have been so prophesied as if they were wished. Because some people say, how come he's asking for deliverance and asking God to pour his wrath on the nations? Why is he not asking God's mercy? That's why St. Augustine explained, it is not a wish, but it is prophecy, prediction about what will happen. Not only have they paid no regard to the worship of God and do not know him, but they eat up his people as they would so much bread and putting them to death. So they refused to know God, they refused to worship him, and also they were very brutal with his children. They want to eat them like bread and put them to death. And he said in, in verse 7, for they have devoured Jacob, devoured, like bread. See, so devoured Jacob and laid waste his dwelling place. Dwelling place is the city of Jerusalem where Jacob actually lived, Israel, which they left desolate. Some take the dwelling place as a reference to the temple, which was certainly destroyed also in the conquest of Jerusalem. According to St. Augustine, what is the dwelling place? It is the city where the temple of God is, where he commanded the assembly to offer the sacrifices, to practice the rites of worship, to celebrate the feast of Passover. Also, it may refer to the land of Israel itself, not only Jerusalem, not the temple, but the land of Israel, previously referred to as God's inheritance in verse 1, as we mentioned. Verse 6 and 7, 
these two verses actually, almost word by word in Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 25. Verse 8. This verse actually is very important for the argument about original sin, whether we are born with the original sin or we just inherited the consequences of sin, the corruption. And we know that the Septuagint is the accepted translation of the scripture to all the traditional churches, like the Orthodox and the Catholic Church. And it's very clear, verse 8, when we, as I will explain right now, it speaks about that we are born sinners. Not only we are born with the consequence of the sin, but we are born sinners. It's very clear. We'll explain it now. Oh, do not remember former iniquities against us. Let your tender mercies come speedily to meet us, for we have been brought very low. The psalmist, by reflection, recognized the sins of the people of Israel to be the ultimate cause of affliction. That's why he said, don't remember former iniquities against us. So speaking on behalf of God's people, Asaph humbled himself before God and admitted their sins against God. They could no longer deny their sin. Instead, they could plead for forgiveness and for God's tender mercies to come speedily. Let your tender mercies come speedily to meet us for we have been brought very low. By the way, we say the second part of verse 8 and verse 9 in the litanies of the sixth hour of the Agbeya. And usually some people read it wrong in Arabic. Let me just correct it in Arabic. تمسكنا يعني تزللنا كتير بيقروها لأنها قد تمسكنا جدا طبعا totally different هي مش تمسكنا لأننا قد تمسكنا جدا جاست لأن دي موجودة في الأجبية تاتم رحمك علينا سريعا لأن قد تمسكنا جدا عنا يا الله مخلصا من أجل مجد اسمك يا رب نجي نغفر الخطير من أجل اسمك قدوس فدي من تخدة من من صالم 79 verse 8 and verse 9 Going back. So they could no longer deny their sin. Instead, they could plead for forgiveness and for God's tender mercies to come speedily. Then the word former iniquities, what does it mean? Do not remember former iniquities against us. What does this mean? Former iniquities, the Hebrew text, may mean either former times or former generations. And the iniquities of former generations or the iniquities that we committed in previous time. So it can be our iniquities that we previously committed or the sins of our fathers, like Adam and Eve. So here he may mean it is not their own iniquities which are particularly referred to, but the iniquities of the people as committed in the former time. Committed of people, our fathers and forefathers, they committed in former time. And the prayer is that 
God would not visit them with the result of the sins of former generation. And the idea of the effects of sin pass over from one generation to next generation is mentioned in the scripture. As we read in Exodus 20, verse 5 and 6, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and to keep my command. So, but the children by repentance can remove their involvement in the parent's sin. And they may in faith pray that God will not remember the, the sins of the former fathers against them by repentance. That's why later in Jeremiah, and these verses actually in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, that the effect of sin passed over from one generation to the next generation. We read this in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. But God promised in Jeremiah not again to do so. As we read in Jeremiah 31, verse 29 and 30, in those days, which days? That is the days of the messianic time, in the days of the grace. In those days, they shall say no more, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Because in the time of grace, in baptism, the original sin is forgiven. So we will not carry the original sin with us. So there is no contradiction between what God said in Exodus and what God said in Jeremiah. Here he's speaking before grace in Exodus. Now he's speaking after grace in those days, in the days of grace. We will not carry the original sin in when we are baptized. And similar promise to Jeremiah 31 is mentioned in Ezekiel 18 from verse 1 to 4. But it could mean the oldest sin of all that of our first parents, Adam and Eve. That's actually according to Septuagint, as I will explain. So the former iniquities can mean the oldest sin of all. What's the oldest sin of all? The disobedience of Adam and Eve, of our first parent, Adam and Eve, by which we are made sinners, and for which judgment comes upon all men, and from sins flows the corruption of nature as meaning in the Septuagint, our ancient iniquities, not our former in the Septuagint, our ancient iniquities, which actually refers to the original sin. So the original sin of our nature, not as individuals, not as individual, but the sin of the humanity, of the human nature, the original sin of our nature in which we are all brought forth in iniquities and in sin my mother conceived me, as we read in Psalm 51 and verse 5. So he said, let your tender mercies come speedily to meet us. The psalmist asked for deliverance. 
not on basis of his own righteousness, but on basis of God's mercy. Let your tender mercy. He did not say, God, we repented now. So, based on our repentance, remove your anger from us. He did not say this. He actually relying not on his, their own righteousness, but on, the, on God's mercy. This is how we all must stand before God. We are sinners. Anything good that we receive is received based on God's mercy and the abundance of his love toward us. Then he said, for we have been brought very low. We have been brought very low. They did not humbly repent. Brought very low, not because of their repentance. They did not humble themselves. But why? Because of all the affliction, all the suffering, all the persecution. So now they were in the place to do it. So God actually humbled them, allowed this to happen. So when they are brought very low, they can return back to God and ask for forgiveness and, and repent. In verse 9, Help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of your name, not for us, for the glory of your name, and deliver us, and provide atonement for our sins, for your name's sake. So here the psalmist seeks deliverance. Why? In order that the name of God may be glorified. Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. So the people will not mock the name of God. Their hardship and suffering have not affected all faith or hope. They still hope in God. They have trust in God. He calls God, God of our salvation. God is still the God of Israel's salvation. The God from whom alone salvation can be obtained and expected. Many times when we fall in many sins, Satan put in our mind, God doesn't love us. God doesn't want to save us. You are a hopeless case. Don't let Satan plant these wrong ideas in your mind. God is still God of our salvation. He said, I did not come to call righteous, but sinners to repentance. The whole do not need physician, but the sick, so, God is entreated to come to Israel's aid. Again, not for their sakes, as they are wholly undeserving. They cannot say for our sake, well, we are not worthy, but for his own glory. Help us against their powerful enemies. Help us against our powerful enemies. Deliver us out of the hand of all their enemies and out of all their affliction, and out of this low state in which they are. And also, there was another appropriate and wonderful confession of sin and dependence on God for his atonement. Provide atonement for our sins. So, for our sins, it's a confession that we are sinners. And no one can atone for our sin is God. Provide atonement for our sins. Why? Because we are worthy? No. For your name's sake. So, Asaph knew that any man-made atonement would be useless. God must provide atonement for our sins. 
So when the psalmist prayed this, the temple and the altar were destroyed. So he's not speaking about atonement in the temple, because the temple during captivity and after Titus, the Roman captain, was destroyed. But here is speaking about the atonement of the Son of God on the cross. The normal sacrifices were impossible. The temple was destroyed. But he looked for a greater atonement that God himself would provide. He pleads three things. Help us, deliver us, provide atonement for our sins. Help us, O God, for our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us. Second pleading. Third one, provide atonement for our sins. And that's why, because it's so beautiful, we pray it every day in the Agbaya. Help us, deliver us, provide atonement for our sins. For we have been brought very low. Being low, they will be lost if God does not help them. Their dependence upon God only, because he is God of our salvation. No one can save us except you. In verse 9, as we said, he appealed to God by the glory of his name. For the glory of your name and for your name's sake. In verse 10, he said, it's another appeal, but in a different way. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let there be known among the nations in our sight the avenging of the blood of your servants which has been shed. So in verse 9, Asaph made a slightly different appeal, but still with an eye on God's glory. Why the nation says, where is their God? Where is the God that was used to protect Israel? So the nation might say, God must have deserted them, or he is quite ignorant of what's happening to them. At that time, a triumph over a foreign nation was always regarded in the ancient world as triumph over their gods. So he asked God to put the nations to silence by displaying his active presence, by acting as the avenger of the blood on behalf of his people. That's why he said, let there be known among the nation. Let God manifest himself among them that they cannot but see that he is the true God. He is a just God. He is the friend, the father, the protector of his people. And he said openly and publicly in our sight, in the view of the whole world, let there be known among the nations in our sight, publicly, not in secret, the avenging of the blood of your servants which has been shed. The avenging of the blood of your servants who has been shed, that God's name not be blasphemed. Asaph is asking God to revenge the blood of his servants, so cruelly spelled, that the God the name of God will not be blasphemed. Asaph wishes that the enemy be made aware that what judgment are brought upon them are punishments of the wrongdoing that they have done to God's people. 
So they are punished, not just coincidence or by chance, but this punishment because what they did to God's people. It is a prayer that just punishment might be executed so God may be feared. So the ultimate goal is the glory of God, that God may be feared. Verse 11, let the groaning of the prisoner come before you. According to the greatness of your power, preserve those who are appointed to die. So here is speaking about two groups of people, the prisoners, the captives, and those who are condemned to death. Let the groaning of the prisoner, the captives, come before you. And according to the greatness of your power, preserve those who are appointed to die, condemned to death. So the psalmist speaking on behalf of God's people has previously asked two things, that the punishment may be inflicted for the slain, for people who shed the blood, and also that the captives condemned to death may be freed when he said, deliver us. Now he reverses it. Now he repeats the, the prayer, but inverted. Now he's first asking for the protection of the living, the prisoner, then revenge for the dead. So it's the same, but first he asked revenge for the blood, then deliver the captives. Now he's speaking first about the prisoners, the captives, and then the revenge for the dead. He is asking God to hear those groaning. God doesn't only hear our words, but hear even the groaning of our heart. And come for deliverance of those who are thus held in captivity. As I've considered those among the exiles in Babylon who were condemned to death and asked God may preserve them. So the captives to deliver them and those appointed to death to preserve them. And again, the appeal to Lord's tender mercy is here supplemented by another appeal addressed to the divine power, according to the greatness of your power. So the nations will not say their God is weak or our false God is greater than he defeated the God of Israel. So he appealed to God's tender mercy. Now he's appealing to his great power. The psalmist rises from a request for those who are brought low to a prayer for those who are appointed to die. After said, we have been brought very low. Now, what about those who are appointed to die? He praises that God would find out a way for the rescue of his poor prisoners, especially the condemned one. A sad final request was that God deal with their enemies with justice and vengeance, returning to them sevenfold the agony they inflicted upon his people and the same reproach they directed toward God himself, as we read in verse 12, and return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom, their reproach with which they have reproached you, O Lord. Do you remember when God appeared to Jesus, appeared to Paul, he told him, why do you persecute me? 
So any reproach against God's people is reproach against God. Sevenfold is simply a way of saying abundantly or in great measure. And their reproach with which they have reproached you, as they reproached God by denying him or calling in question the perfections of his power, maybe God is weak to deliver your people, and questioning God's truth and goodness to help his people, but also destroying his house, even reproaching his people in reproach is reproaching him. So he said, you know, return to their bosom, their reproach with which they have reproached you. The last verse, the conclusion of this psalm is very, very beautiful. So we, your people and sheep of your pasture, will give you thanks forever. We will show forth your praise to all generations. So after praying for rescue, protection, and vengeance, Asaph ended this psalm with grateful dependence upon God. He properly recognized God's place as shepherd over his people and sheep and concludes with a vow of thanksgiving. Israel, as grateful sheep, will then be able to render its tribute of unceasing praise forever to, the, to their Lord and shepherd and would declare their thanks and praise now and in the future. So the psalmist, despite their sins, is confident in their relationship with God. We are your people. We are the sheep of your pasture. And we will give thanks to you forever, unceasingly. And we will show forth your praise to all generations. So, so they are oppressed and brought low, yet they are the sheep of his pasture. Perhaps if the children of Israel had honored God from generation to generation before this judgment came upon them, maybe they could have avoided it. It's often the unbeliever's way to make promises to God when he encounters affliction. But we are different. We should not wait until we encounter affliction to praise God. But we should rather praise and honor him in time of peace as well as in time of affliction. When there is no need for his deliverance and when there is a need for his deliverance. And when affliction comes, we should praise God and rest in him as we go through it. That he will deliver us according to his promises, not based on our worthiness, but based on the glory of his name based on the abundance of his love, the richness of his mercy, and the greatness of his power. This concludes Psalm 79. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.